everyone. Welcome back to the Table Rock Digging Deeper podcast. I'm Tristan. I'm joined here again with Don. And this week we are coming to talk to you guys about something that is really perplexing um, as we look at the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark. So that's where we are as a church. And we're going to be talking about something today called the Messianic Secret. Now, kind of just to give you an overview of what we're talking about, it's kind of why do we seem to see this pattern in Mark's gospel of Jesus trying to keep things under wraps, telling people not to say who he is, not to spread the word? It feels kind of counterintuitive. Um, Very briefly, I want to say this term, messianic secret, just full disclosure, it comes from a strange place. It comes from a scholar named William Reed in 1901 who wrote an essay called The Messianic Secret. And his thesis was basically that, you know, Jesus didn't claim to be divine or to be the Messiah during his life and ministry. And so Christians later on who wanted to say this about Jesus then needed a way of explaining why it didn't seem like he was saying these things was because he had this messianic secret. He was keeping it under wraps. And that's the explanation. Uh, That proposal has been largely rejected, but the name has stuck of messianic secret which is just kind of a way uh, of referring to this phenomenon that we see where jesus is again trying to keep things under wraps about who he is telling people um, not to share so to give you a couple examples of where we see that specifically in mark's gospel um, we see it specifically around these these miraculous healings so jesus cleanses a leper and then he says to him afterwards see that you say nothing to anyone Um, or later on he's going to heal a man who is both deaf and mute and again he's going Mm -hmm. to charge him to tell no one (laughs) and it's very strange Uh, it's very perplexing Um, and I think maybe where this comes most to a head is and it's kind of a turning point in Mark's gospel is in Mark 8 which is where Peter makes this confession and and the disciples make this confession Um, Jesus says to them who do you say that I am and they say you are the Christ and he doesn't deny it with them but he does tell them. It says he strictly charged yeah. them to tell no one about him. <laughs> so keep it, keep it under wraps, guys. Don't be, don't be sharing that I'm the Messiah. So anyway, that's kind of setting the table for what we're talking about with this messianic secret. So I kind of want to transition over to you, Don. Of explain some of the perplexity of this. Why are we talking about this? Yeah, you know, you even see it too in those healings. But even casting out demons, he'll say to the demons, "Don't go spreading." you know, this about who I am. And so we see it over and over. And as you're reading the gospel, you're wondering why? Because, and I I think this is a good thing, we have such an impulse to say, like, go and make disciples of all the nations. Like, go tell everyone far and wide the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so you would think that's what he would want to do when he arrived, that he would want to announce it as loud as he could. Get as many t-shirts, many bracelets, whatever. And just like everyone needs to know that Jesus the Messiah is here. And yet what we see is quite the opposite. Don't go share that news, Peter, that you, you're right about who I am, the Messiah, but don't, don't go spreading it or to the leper or so on and so forth. So we're just kind of stuck with the question, what would lead Jesus to, in this case, keep that secret? keep this messianic reality a secret and so there's like you said proposals that have been given and we just wanted to dig in and say we think there's really actually good biblical precedent for why jesus chose to do this in his ministry so do you want to kick us off maybe with the first one kind of real practical reason why yeah 
Definitely. And, and I guess to kind of land the plane a little bit on, on what, what we're talking about here is, is one of the things we're going to be helped by initially is recognizing that that was a temporary situation. Yeah, it, it was really only during Christ's ministry that he was instructing the disciples to you know, not share widely about who he was. We don't see that afterward, but it still raises the question, why during his ministry? Yeah. What was the point? Yeah. Um, and so kind of the first is sort of some practical considerations around that. And so I think we kind of have to be sensitive to the political climate um, <laughs> that they were in. So the Jews have from the prophets, all of these expectations of this Davidic son whom God was going to raise up to be king over them, uh, who would basically uh, restore Jerusalem and, and restore Israel from its fallen glory to be a, to be a dominant sovereign uh, kingdom once again, like, like in the old days. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that the Jews were under Roman rule. And, and so, you know, that won't be a new a new idea to most Christians, but to to kind of share that again, um, they weren't a sovereign nation. They were uh, they were under the rule of Rome, uh, who had their own um, you know kings and rulers that they placed over different regions that they ruled um, over the whole known world, basically. And and the, so you know Israel and um, Palestine had their own rulers, and so if it would have come out that Jesus was saying, hey. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm the Messiah. I am. I am this promised king. Well, the only way that that could have been heard would be as a political insurrection. Yeah. That here's a guy who's who's coming forth, who's going to challenge Caesar, and they're going to overthrow these Roman rulers. And so I think that's kind of the first practical consideration: is if Jesus had just come out and said he's he's the Messiah, um, it would have been taken as a political statement, and and the Roman uh, governors and and um, magistrates would have certainly intervened in that. Yeah, and I think you see a window into the politics of that world in the journey through Acts that we see as we follow the early church. And so take just for example, remember like Paul in so Acts 19, you know, he's in the city and people are not happy with what he's teaching and you you see this statement. This is Acts 19:40. For we really, this is the officials of that moment talking, say we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. So if you were just to think like a small town, a small little commotion, and they're really worried about what the government is going to see and think about this riot. And so just extrapolate that to the messianic promises and all of the things that people were reading into. And I, I think it's just without a doubt that there would have been a swift intervention from you know, the Roman occupation. So that was uh, one of the commentaries I was reading. Edwards, that's how he put it. Just, I think that's right. That's what we would expect if he just decided he's going to wear that t-shirt everywhere and broadcast this idea of Messiah. But then also, importantly, it's not just practical. So as the government is like listening in, for if you will, or seeing these things and want to snuff out a rebellion. But there's also a lot of misunderstandings on what the Messiah was to be and who Jesus really was as the Messiah. And, and that, for, as you and I, Tristan, talked, feel, we feel like that's even more important as to why Jesus would keep the idea of him being the Messiah a secret because there were so many misconceptions that to say that came with misunderstanding. Uh, and so maybe we can dig into that a little bit now. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, all these people want to affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. They see the healings, the miracles that he's doing. He kind of is checking these boxes of Messiah. They're acknowledging that. They're seeing that. But to your point, yeah, 
they are they're not understanding in many significant ways the kind of messiah that he is yeah. uh or they're not they're not fully understanding who he is in his divine identity so there's a lot of misunderstandings about who he is as messiah and what he has come to do and i think it's these kind of spiritual considerations about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, which, yeah, to your point, Don, are really take us to the heart of maybe the messianic secret and why we see Jesus kind of resisting uh, the, you know, what the crowds, these frenzied crowds are trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there is this divergence in, in understanding between who Jesus is and what his ministry is all about versus what the people think his ministry is all about. Yeah. A good thing would would be maybe for we could parse out for for our listeners here. What are those major mm-hmm. divergences? Uh, what are the misunderstandings that they that they have? And so, the, kind of the first one we wanted to talk about was kind of this idea of kind of the spiritual yeah. impetus of Jesus' mission. So, Don, I don't know if you'd want to share yeah. on that point. Yeah. So you you've got this idea of like a political salvation, which is what so many people had in their mind, versus. Uh, the spiritual mission that Jesus was not principally concerned. Now, let me just bring it to the text that we had this last week. He's not principally concerned with doing all of these healings for the sake of healing, but he's actually principally doing healings that he might put an explanation point on what his teaching, because the, the core of what his message is, is that he came that he might free people from wrath, sin, eternal death, eternal pain, not just back pain, but pain of being totally separated from God when the fullness of the kingdom of God came. And so if you just take that little glimpse and put it now over the banner of his entire ministry, there's a misunderstanding of who he is, not only as a healer, but as he's not a political grabbing and trying to conquer a kingdom right now in this moment, but rather sharing a message of forgiveness of from wrath and um, forgiveness of sins. And so you read something simple like this from 1 Timothy, which just says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's a simple message that like he's just giving it as one simple, I came that sinners might know salvation, or you see this in Mark, and Andrew will touch on this this week, Mark 2.17, those who have uh, no need of a physician, but those who are sick, that's he, who he came for. And then he, this is what he clarifies. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So uh, you just see him framing his message as this rescuer uh, of spiritual realities, uh, first and foremost. Yeah, it's such an important point. I think um, Jesus is really trying to help people in his teaching, in his proclamation of the kingdom, to see what their greatest need is. Because to your point, Don, these are people who in many ways are, are really just excited about Jesus being the Messiah because they're excited about getting out from under the thumb right. of, of Caesar. You know, it's in, it's in many ways that the situation in Israel is kind of comparable to Israel's earlier slavery in yeah. Egypt. They're under these foreign rulers. They're not being treated well. They are being heavily taxed. Um, so there's all kinds of national frustration and this desire Uh, to get out from underneath that again there's also you know just our own personal trials Mm -hmm. and our own personal sicknesses and as much as jesus does care about all of those things he's trying to highlight in his ministry that's not actually your greatest need 
to right. be rescued from those things. A- actually, your greatest need is to be rescued from God because you are a sinner and his wrath is coming upon the world. He's going to restore uh, his people. He's going to restore his kingdom. And wrath is going to come upon all of his enemies. You need to be restored from your sin and renewed to righteousness. That is your greatest need. And, and we just see Jesus trying to put people's eyes on that over and over yeah. again. This is where your true need lies. This is the essence, the core of the salvation that I've come to bring you. And again, it's not that these other things aren't important, but they're not the most important. Yeah. And I think it's it's a good segue, too, into another piece of that, which is this concept that people in that day especially were thinking of the Messiah and what it meant for the age to come. Like that when the Messiah came, it came with all of this reality of what they would see as the kingdom of God coming in that moment. And really, you might parse it out in a couple ways, but one way is, the idea that it's not actually now just one coming, but now it's two comings of, of the Messiah. Or you might say, you know, phase one or phase two, however you want to say it. But there's a misunderstanding as to what the Messiah is going to bring. In this case, Jesus is going to bring now in his first coming. And I don't know that many had this idea of first and second coming. And so we begin to see that already, like these misunderstandings happening all in this moment. So maybe... Um, can you bring us maybe a little bit more into that and how that ties into this messianic secret? Definitely, yeah. And so you said, you know, many people didn't have, you know, categories for, for two comings of the Lord. I, I don't know that anyone did. And, and frankly, they didn't really have reason to because um, the Old Testament prophets, when they're talking about the day of the Lord, uh, the Lord's going to come from heaven. He's going to visit his people to restore them and judge God's enemies they really are describing that all that whole process as kind of a singular event. And so I think one thing that really highlights sort of the confusion a lot of people had with Jesus and his ministry is seen in, in John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about John the Baptist, we think, man, if, if anyone gets it, right. if anyone knows what Jesus is about and his ministry, well, it's got to be John the Baptist, right? He's God's apostle. He's the messenger whom God appointed and sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's got to get it, right? But it's actually really interesting because we see, um, you know, this this period where, where John is in prison. Um, he's, he's being persecuted for speaking out uh, against Herod, uh, Antipas, and he, he sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Because <laughs> there's kind of this question of like, man, if, if you're the Messiah, why am I in prison? Right. <laughs> like, the prophet said that when the Messiah would come forth, he would deliver us from all of our enemies. And here I am, you know, yeah. in, in prison. And so you can kind of sympathize with John. I mean, on one level, you can't because I think he, he shouldn't be he shouldn't be doubting the <laughs> sure. one whom God has revealed to him is, is the Messiah. But at the same time, it's like, isn't this what's supposed to happen? We're supposed to be delivered from our enemies. And and that expectation is not wrong. That's right. That, that was promised yeah. uh, that God's people would be delivered from their enemies. But again, it's kind of this split into what was initially sort of envisioned in the Old Testament prophets as a single coming of the Lord is now split into this kind of complex uh, first coming and then second coming. And so we kind of get what we talk about in, in theology as sort of a, a now and not yet dynamic, that there's elements of this salvation that God has promised, which we have now. Uh, we have all the promises of God in part, but not yet in fullness. Yeah. And so something like 
deliverance from our enemies in this world is something we're still awaiting until he comes again uh, from heaven. And that's when those promises will be uh, fulfilled in their fullness. Yeah. So it, it really is this kingdom coming in this unexpected way. You, you kind of have this paradigm in the Old Testament of um, God's kingdom being like a, an actual kingdom, the nation of Israel on earth, meant to be sovereign on the earth, to rule politically uh, over all nations, to exercise its sovereignty. And man, what Jesus comes and does and sort of the way in which the kingdom comes really turns that on its head to where it's like, no, actually the kingdom is belongs to heaven and, and the kingdom belongs to the age to come. And, and to be a member of this kingdom is to long for, you know, what's to come in the, in the new age. Yeah. And so there's kind of, it brings in this sojourning dynamic that was very unexpected and very jarring, uh, understandably so. We can sympathize with these Jews who had these promises and, and didn't understand that the kingdom would come about yeah. in this unexpected way. That's right. And you see it playing out in Mark, this now, not yet, or this already, not yet, where these healings are happening. And yet there's some that aren't yet healed. And what I, I think is a helpful way to view that is those healings are, in a sense, that future kingdom breaking through in this moment in, in time. And yet there's going to be a day when there will be no more tears and no more pain and, and no more sorrow. So what we see practiced in Jesus' healing will one day be the norm. But for the moment, there's some experience of the already some deliverance, e even that we would experience as, as believers who are saved from, you know, wrath and, and sin. And, and yet, um, there's still sin that is, gets in the way, and yet we know the promise of a day when sin will no longer be in the way. And so, in, in all of these things, we see this now, not yet, this already not yet playing out. And uh, yet, that would be another reason why Jesus didn't want to simply just broadcast, hey, the Messiah has come because of these misunderstandings. And there's one more that we really wanted to spend a, a good uh, just dive into because we both just think this is so key to understanding not only the Messianic secret, but so much of the Gospel of Mark. And it is the idea of the suffering servant. And that certainly wasn't misunderstood, but I'll or certainly wasn't understood. It was misunderstood. I don't know, again, that many would have understood just by reading their Old Testament how much um, Jesus in Suffering Servant would, would be a reality of who he was. They, they just missed it. But I'll just um, kick us off with Isaiah 49 too. And this is just an example of um, some of the hiddenness that, that you see in the, the kind of behind the scenes of, so this is Isaiah later in his book talking about the Suffering Servant. So here's Isaiah 49 too. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, but then we read this, in the shadow of his hands he hid me. So so you see the, the, the hiddenness, or he made me a polished arrow in his quiver, he hid me. And so you see language of the describing the suffering servant as one who is in some ways, the, he's hidden for a, a, a bit. And then the message then goes forth because it talks about how it's not in vain, that God will let this message spread. But this is just yet, oh, just a little taste of the significance of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah and in Mark, and then, of course, in the person of Jesus. So I'll just start us there. Tristan, what else would you want to add when we think about the suffering servant and the messianic secret? Yeah, I, I think just to, to bring this whole messianic secret uh, conversation full circle is just to think about, again, like all these crowds see these miracles that he's doing, see these exorcisms he's performing, see these healings. 
and they just are they just think he's the man mm-hmm. right these crowds and um that's kind of what's being offered to jesus I, I think someone in our life group kind of compared it to jesus's temptation of you know satan offering all the kingdoms of yeah, the world to, to jesus he man he's got all of these people knocking on his door um, he could have been a rock star, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he could have been the man, you know, um, if he would have just leaned into what all these people were trying to do, what they were trying to bring. Uh, but he resisted it. Again, he rejected it. And it brings up this question. And I think it's just kind of ultimately getting to the heart of, like you said, this suffering servant uh, motif that, that Jesus is coming in, in the mold of Isaiah's prophecy of suffering servant. He's not coming to be the kind of Messiah they expect. And, you know, he doesn't receive the glory that these crowds are trying to offer to him because it's the wrong kind of glory. Mm-hmm. It's not a glory that sees him for who he is and for what he's coming to do. It's out of step with it. And kind of in refusing the advances of these crowds, regularly withdrawing from them, avoiding them, uh, keeping things under wraps, I think what we see Jesus doing is he's trying to dictate the terms of yeah. his own ministry um, rather than letting these frenzied crowds who don't understand who who don't understand his mission to dictate the terms of his ministry, he's coming to fulfill the will of the Father, right. which is ultimately to be uh, God's suffering servant, to be the one whom, as uh, as Isaiah foretold in Isaiah fifty three, he would be the the servant who would come ultimately to be rejected by the people, mm-hmm. to be scorned and to be mocked and ultimately to be crucified, and. Gosh, what we see happen is when all these people come and finally find out, hey, this guy isn't who we wanted him to be or who we expected him to be, well, then they all turn away, Yeah. right? And that's that's how this prophecy ends up being fulfilled about him being this rejected, crucified Messiah is because he's not the one they were looking for, not the one they, they were expected. And so they all turn away from him, turn on him, um, and, and that's what ultimately is, is kind of the catalyst leading him to the cross. But, but I think what we want to see here in Mark is that the glory that is brought to Jesus when we rightly see him for who he is, is a greater glory than the glory he would have gotten from these crowds mm-hmm. who didn't understand him or his ministry. It's a glory that God himself, the Father, is bestowing on Christ as his promised suffering servant. And it's a glory which we offer to him with eyes of faith as we come finally to see just who he is and the greatness of his salvation and to worship him in light of that, you know, crucifixion, uh, resurrection glory, which is a greater glory. It's not the glory of the world. It's, it's not the glory of man. It's the glory of, of God. That's right. Yeah, and I think you see that in this, like in Isaiah 53, you see in that text, Isaiah 49, like it wouldn't be normal. Like we think you got a sharp sword, you hide it. You got a polished arrow, you put it away. Like you, you can heal. Why don't you go heal, you know, everyone you can. You, you just go and grab the biggest and largest crowds to what we would think. And yet we see in Jesus this suffering servant who came not to do the bidding of the popular crowd that wanted X, Y, and Z from him. But I think you said it well. He came with one purpose, and that was to fulfill the mission his father gave him. And so uh, we talked about uh, James Edwards and his commentary on Mark and this one quote that I, I think really gets at the, the heart of like all what we're trying to say. And he says this, Mark employs this theme, this idea, this messianic secret to, to show, you know, his, this, this, Christ's purpose that until Jesus's work on the cross with all of what it entails, like until that has happened, 
all of the statements about Jesus are premature because it's only at the cross that we can rightly understand who Jesus is. And so until that confession, for example, of the centurion at the cross, all the utterances of Jesus from you know, the crowd who's saying he's the Messiah, or even his disciples, and especially, it's easy for us to think of the demons, like all of those are either premature or false because they, they, they don't understand the fullness of the suffering servant, which we see on the cross, which again would underscore why Jesus came. And so that's just a paraphrase of Edwards that I think gets to the heart of why we're saying this actually says a lot about who Jesus is and, and what Mark is showing us of what the Messiah, uh, really what Jesus' mission was as the Messiah. Man, it's such, yeah, such an important point. Thank, thank you for bringing that up, Don. That it, it really is, um, yeah, the only way in which we come finally to see Jesus for who he is and to understand what he's doing as the Messiah is only through the lens of the cross, right? So it's only, it's only with hindsight as the disciples looked back after Jesus' death and resurrection and really realized the fullness of who he was and what he had come to do and, and not before. Yeah, so, so there's all kinds of uh, misunderstandings, like you said, even on the part of the disciples prior to that point. And I guess kind of the, the last thing we can kind of close with as we sort of look forward to continue on in Mark and we're sort of thinking about how does this all come home to us as we think about um, our life as Christians and, and what it means to follow Jesus. I think Mark is trying to press the point on, listen, this Messiah is not going to fit in with the expectations of the world. Mm-hmm. He's not going to fit in, first and foremost, with our own personal purposes and expectations. The concerns, the agenda that he brings uh, for the kingdom and, and the spiritual definition of that are going to you know, cut across a lot of the, the major and primary purposes and concerns that we have. Are we going to follow this Messiah on his terms? And specifically, mm-hmm. are we going to follow this Messiah as the, the, the suffering servant? Are we going to follow a Messiah who ultimately is rejected and crucified and calls us to walk on a similar path to him as his disciples? I think that's the question that Mark wants to bring home. You know, will we follow that kind of Messiah? Yeah. Everybody wants to find, follow the Messiah whose promises to make them great, esteemed, honored in the world. But that's not the Messiah we're following if we're Christians. And I think that's what Mark is really trying to shine the line on. Yeah, amen. And you see that in Paul in his opening to the Corinthian church when he talks about this kind of Messiah, the Messiah who was crucified. And he says that what God shows that this is foolishness to the world. Um, and it's despised in the world. And, and th- like this message is, is in God's kingdom, wisdom. But to, to everyone else, this just looks like foolishness. And then, of course, that has um, a, a ton of implications. But I think that's the right question to be asking. Are we willing to take on the... Um, the world's label of the foolishness of the cross to say, no, this is not foolish. This is the very hope that we need. And uh, man, I, my answer is yes, and, uh, it, it, but it has a lot of implications. And we would, uh, well, I think we'll keep seeing that over and over uh, in Mark. And um, so, man, so much more to say, we can say, but uh, I think we'll stop there unless you have anything else you want to add before we go. I think that's it. I think this just really primes the pump and uh, sets us all looking forward for, for what's to come in our series on Mark. Yeah, I'm really excited. And so thank you guys for listening in on the podcast and we will catch you guys again in two weeks.